Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan. So today I am experimenting with Zoom for my interview recording. Because we are all staying home due to social distancing, all my previous episodes were pre-social distancing. So guys, bear with me. The sound quality may not be as stellar and there may be some issues with acoustics. But you know what? It's all worth it because we are staying home to save lives. And today I have a very interesting guest. Aisha Khan is an award-winning journalist whose work is rapidly changing the narrative around Muslims in America and around the world. What's most impressive about her work is its justice-oriented nature and that's something that I'm always so impressed with. Aisha basically focuses on controversial, uncomfortable subjects that uplift the voices of marginalized communities. Her work is daring and it's brave. And she has covered issues like federal anti-extremism programs, Muslim women confronting spiritual abuse, a Uyghur woman battling for her father's release from detention in China, and Muslim-led bail funds. She's also the founder of the newsletter Creeping Sharia. And before you guys freak out, it's a tongue-in-cheek title, which compiles the latest and greatest journalism on Muslims to help you understand the political, cultural, religious, and social landscape of American Muslims. I am so excited to have her on my show. Please welcome Aisha Khan. When I first arrived at Religion News Service as an intern, my editors were pointing me to, okay, here's our, you know, let me introduce you to our reporter who covers the Black Church. Here's our reporter who covers Judaism. Um, here's our reporter who covers Catholicism. And here's somebody who covers Protestantism and Evangelicals, right? And I was like, oh, cool, where's your Muslim reporter? They don't have one, right? They farm it out to freelancers. Whoever is least busy that day will handle the story, right? Thank you so much for coming on my show. I am excited under the circumstances, I guess. So how are you holding up? You know, I'm okay. I work from home anyways, so uh, <laughs> nothing that unusual for me. How bad is the situation in Boston? Because I am so consumed with New York news mm-hmm. that I haven't been paying attention to other places. So what's the situation in Boston? It's getting pretty uh, intense. It's a little bit of a ghost town if you ever end up going downtown. You know, I don't think it's quite as bad as what we're seeing in New York, not by any means. You know, we had an event here maybe a month or so ago in Cambridge, a biotech event, I believe. And it was one of the super spreaders. And like, I think 40 people came out of it sick. So that kind of sent us on a downward spiral in the area. Aisha, as a journalist, how has your job um, been affected by global pandemic in terms of reporting on things? Yeah, so I'm a religion reporter and I focus mostly on the American Muslim community, but also, you know, some South Asian religious communities and just religion in general. And I'm also a national reporter. The work I do, you know, I'll be covering a community in California and then you know, South Carolina the next day. So most of the work that I do is over the phone or, you know, via email or other things like that. I I rarely get the chance to actually go in person unless it's something here in Boston. So in that way, 
I'm again, pretty used to this type of thing. But on the other hand, it's been kind of incredible because so many things have moved online, obviously religious services Mm. and activist organizing and things like that. So, you know, as these events are kind of moving online instead of, you know, in the hubs of DC and New York and LA and whatnot, I've actually been able to access um, some virtual spaces that I ordinarily am not able to go to and, you know, hear some folks talk that typically I don't, I don't really get to interact with. That's interesting. Talking about your work, now, according to your website, you're currently working at Religion News Service, right? That's correct. And you report on U.S. Muslims and millennial spirituality, right? Which is fascinating. In your opinion, how has Islam evolved among newer generation? How are millennials approaching their religion differently, say, than their parents' generation? You know, I think people always perform their religion differently, depending upon, you know, their political, their, you know, socioeconomic, whatever it might be, these kinds of factors around them. You know, everything kind of plays into the way that you see the way your religion affects you and affects the world, right? So I think over the past several years, we've really seen young American Muslim communities really build coalitions with really leftist, progressive movements. And so we've seen kind of coalitions build with, you know, environmentalist movements, with definitely with Black Lives Matter and anti-racist organizations, with pro, pro-LGBT pro rights movements, um, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. And, uh, you know, that's not something that you really saw so much of, you know, one generation ago when Muslims were largely supporting the Republican Party in the United States. A lot of people forget that that was you know, that was not very far off in our history. If we think about the religion itself, people would think that Islam would align better with Republican values. Do you agree? I definitely think it's one of those cases where you really can't paint with a broad brush here. Definitely, I think the biggest factor is age. And Muslims are pretty much across the board the youngest faith group in the U.S., and also the most ethnically diverse. So you see those kinds of things really playing a part in folks' understanding of how their religion and politics mesh. One of the things that I really see young Muslims pointing to is the fact that, okay, maybe Islam doesn't necessarily encourage abortion, but it allows for that right. You know, there are circumstances in which most scholars say Islam does allow for an abortion to take place. And a lot of Muslims don't see the Republican Party as supporting those rights and those exemptions. Mm. So that's one area where, you know, even though Islam isn't, you know, the most liberal necessarily, it's also doesn't quite align with ultra conservative values of the GOP. That's interesting. And you have a newsletter called Creeping Sharia. It's interesting because the name I believe it's tongue-in-cheek. Oh, um, tongue absolutely, right? yeah. Uh, but have you ever gotten pushback or, you know, criticism for from Islamophobes? The reason I ask this is my podcast was initially called The Alien Chronicles, and my idea at the time was to reclaim the word alien, and it was a tongue-in-cheek title. But then I realized that many people really didn't understand the irony of the title, mm. and I felt like it was somehow promoting what I was trying to discourage. So I changed it to immigrantly. Have you ever felt that the name is 
promoting something else than what it is meant to? Yeah, you know, I don't think everyone necessarily understands it, but it's aimed at a really niche audience. You know, most of the subscribers are folks who are academics, researchers and scholars or journalists themselves or students who focus on this space of, you know, American Muslims or Muslims in the West, religion and politics, things along those lines. So it goes really nitty gritty. If you look at a Mm. typical edition, you know, I send it out once or twice a month. If you look at a typical edition, it has, you know, anywhere from like 90 to like 150 links in there and, you know, tons of legal cases, hate crimes, as well as, you know, really interesting features and arts and culture articles. But it's really not for a casual reader. So um, it's, it's, it's really aimed at folks who this is their bread and butter. This is their daily work. So in that way, I think people who are reading it really, they get it. Yeah, a large amount of your work, as you said, has been dedicated to like shedding light on marginalized communities. And I did talk about it in my intro as well. But Aisha, do you ever feel like drained or burnt out from constantly reporting on injustices? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it can definitely feel frustrating. It can leave me exhausted, drained, as you say. But I try to balance my work between stories that are, you know, important, critical, underreported in the sense that, you know, somebody was hurt, somebody is going to be hurt, things along those lines. But also, like, I think part of my job is also to provide stories for Muslims to feel, Mm. you know, first of all, represented in the media, but also to feel uplifted and to, you know, send to their friends and say, hey, did you see this? Or like, hey, this is the thing we were talking about at our mosque last week. And so that's really something that I strive to do in my in my journalism that, you know, create the kind of journalism that Muslims actually themselves want to read because so much of the media representation of Muslims may it may be very well intentioned but it tends to focus on looking at Muslims as you know some sort of an object right where it's like oh wow look at this Muslim woman who's breaking stereotypes by you know opening a bakery or something right and you know Muslims know the stereotypes that exist and that they're not true right so they don't need to read that story they don't need to read stories about hate crimes. I mean, they they live that life, right? They don't need to read stories about like what is Hajj, what is Ramadan, you know, like what is jihad. <laughs> they don't they don't really need those explainers. And yeah, I think mainstream media outlets keep publishing those sorts of stories and being like, hey, why aren't Muslims reading this reporting about Muslims? Well, it's just not interesting to them. It's not anything they don't know or anything that they haven't read before. So I I tend to be drawn more towards stories that are a little bit more um, human. And Hmm. um, for example, you know, things about like environmentalism or um, criminal justice reform or things like that, that Muslims are working on and, you know, struggling to answer these questions and figure out a way to solve these problems. But when you go really in depth into issues like this, and into communities and the ways that they're struggling to figure out these issues and have figured out some of these issues, you end up creating a really a much more universal story that, you know, mm. a Christian, Jew, atheist, whatever it is, when they read it, they're like, oh, hey, my community also has this issue and is dealing with it in similar ways. 
So you talked about media's depiction of Muslims, and we all know it's pretty bad and it's very stereotypical. And I believe you were being generous when you said it's well-intentioned. Honestly, I am very skeptical about that. I don't think it's well-intentioned. I think they try to perpetuate certain stereotypes to promote a narrative that we've seen in the U.S. pre and post 9-11. Do you see any way of changing that narrative, as you said, through storytelling, but on a much larger scale. Do you see that happening currently? You know, I do see it changing. The types of stories that, you know, even just in the past like year, the types of stories that I've been seeing as I'm putting together my newsletter have shifted, I feel like. You know, when I, when I started the newsletter because I was like, hey, there aren't enough of these stories, right? But very quickly, I realized, you know, as I started putting together and compiling links every month, there are actually a lot of stories. It's just about the quality of the stories, right? And I feel like many Muslim journalists are emerging in this space right now. I can't tell you how many emails and DMs and messages I get from young journalists, journalism students, high school students, or, you know, just graduated who are Muslim and are saying, hey, I want to do this kind of work. Can you help me? How do I, you know, get my foot in the door? And so I'm really hopeful that that will evolve, that will change over the next five, 10 years. You know, I've already seen it change so much. And I think having more Muslims actually writing these narratives and shaping these narratives will, I think that's key. I, I think you can't, get mass change without that diversity within the media itself. So let's pivot a little. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Maryland. I was actually born in Canada. Yeah, my my family moved, my parents moved to the U.S. and then lived between the U.S. and Canada for, uh, you know, while I was a child, but I grew up in Maryland. So were there many Muslims around when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, actually there were. Not so much in my school. I was the only Muslim, I believe, for elementary school and then there are a few more in middle and high school but I was the only hijab wearing student my entire life. We see so many Muslim women wearing hijab and even Muslim models who are wearing hijab. So hijab I think in U.S. has evolved over the last 20 years but when you were growing up was there any backlash? You know I would get a random comment here or there but it would really not be from anybody I knew. The funny thing was I started when I was quite young. I started when I was in, I believe, fourth grade wearing the hijab. And the thing was that I had told everybody in my class beforehand that I'm going to do this. So it didn't come as a shock to anybody. Everybody knew what I was doing, why I was doing it. So they just kind of, you know, kids, they just kind of accept things, I feel. It was when I got to high school and, you know, there's a lot more people, people I don't know, older kids. And they would, they would make some comments, but I was very lucky. Um, I grew up in a really diverse neighborhood in Maryland, suburban Maryland, and um, it was all right. So Aisha, why did you choose journalism? What was the trigger? <laughs> it's uh, uh, nothing so uh, powerful as, it's just, it's, it's re really, I wanted to be a writer as a child. I always wanted to write, but I very quickly realized that I lack the commitment to write a full-blown novel or something, a full book. So I thought, you know, articles, I can handle that, you know, short pieces. <laughs> so that's, you know, I started in journalism in high school. I became the editor-in-chief of my um, high school paper, then went to journalism school at the University of Maryland and um, pretty much straight out of there. How did your parents respond? 
I'm assuming Desi parents are never happy with these um, professions. It's either, you know, you become a doctor or an engineer. I'm a Desi parent and I sometimes tend to do that to my kids who are much younger, but we'll see where they go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a long fight. Um, um, they definitely wanted me to go into medicine or computer science, actually, and I was not receptive to either. <laughs> I think the fact I got, you know, good scholarships and was also staying at a university fairly close to home, that made it more palatable. Also, just the fact that I was and am really dedicated to telling stories about Muslims and kind of hmm. shifting those narratives about American Muslim communities, I think that really did affect their you know, ability to swallow it, particularly since I come from a minority Muslim community. I'm part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And so it was always a big part of our um, our focus um, growing up to try and serve the community and bring more attention to it and shift the the narrative around that. So as I, you know, I kind of argued that as a journalist, I'll have more capability to do that than in any other position. Aisha, talking about Ahmadiyya Muslim community, it's one of the most persecuted communities, at least in Pakistan. And I wanted to get your take on how have you reconciled with the idea that Ahmadiyya community is persecuted within broader Muslim community? And how do you see that interaction in the U.S.? I think people are starting over the past several years to learn more about it, especially younger Muslims are learning more about these minority communities. And I think especially because of, you know, how easy it is to get to know people online and, you know, hmm. people from different backgrounds online. A lot of younger Muslims are coming across different minority sects online. You know, Shias, Ismailis, uh, Ahmadis, Buhari's, different kinds of communities. You know, it start, they're starting to question some of the black and white narratives that they were taught either in their mosque or by their parents or, you know, on Pakistani TV or whatever it might be um, growing up. And um, I have been very lucky in my life that neither I nor my family have really been very deeply affected by that persecution. My parents kind of moved here out of choice. They weren't, you know, forced to leave um, because of any particular violence. It was just a fear that, you know, things might get worse. So, you know, we should get out of here while the going is good. Whereas, you know, I can see even in my my husband's family, he's also Pakistani Ahmadi. He was actually born in Pakistan, whereas I was born in North America. His family faced a lot of um, violence back home in, um, in Sindh, where his family is originally from you know, mob violence, you know, his his fam family's home was mobbed when there were only, you know, his mom and some of her sisters at home and, you know, hundreds of families outside their home wanting to literally kill them. And they were only able to escape because of the helps of some police who came and, you know, um, helped them get out of back exit. Um, some of his family members were stabbed and left for dead um, or there were other attempts on their lives. You know, they're some of his uncles weren't able to get jobs or get the jobs that they were qualified for because of this. And it has really affected, you know, their their careers, their educations, things like that. Um, and so when they came to Canada, they, you know, were escaping something. So th that's the story mm -hmm. for a lot of Ahmadis I know in the U.S. and Canada. Um, I was very lucky myself. That kind of persecution is not something we see in 
the US or Canada or UK so much, but it's still there. In the UK primarily, there are a lot of leaflets on a regular basis. You know, there are leaflets being distributed saying, oh, Ahmadis are, they say, as in like there is yeah. an obligation to kill them because mm-hmm. they are, you know, blasphemous or heretics. And Canada also, you see some types of things like that. There are conferences that are kind of dedicated to, you know, talking about how Ahmadis are disbelievers and gothers, as they say, and, um, you know, outside the fold of Islam and, you know, don't don't talk to the Qadianis, as they call us, um, derogatorily, and, you know, avoid them. They're all liars, etc. And, you know, you see a little bit of that in the U.S. There's been a, there was a conference a few years back in um, Virginia on the same issue. But on a daily basis, you don't really see that in the U.S., How do you think Muslims, other Muslims, Sunni Muslims who are in majority can contribute to changing that narrative or being allies with Ahmadi community and other minorities? As you said, Ahmadi community is one, um, Shias, as you mentioned, Ismailis. There are so many other minorities within broader Muslim community. How can they help, especially in the U.S.? I think definitely the Ahmadi community is a really open one in the sense that it's very involved in, you know, advocacy work and interfaith work and that sort of thing in community service. And they're always open to, you know, partnering with different organizations and, you know, having interfaith events, you know, going over to a church or a synagogue. But the funny thing is you really don't see that kind of interaction happening between Ahmadi mosques and other communities' mosques, you know, there will be, in town, there will be an Ahmadi mosque and there will be a Sunni mosque, right? And they won't really mm. be in contact. They won't really know each other. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that, well, on the Ahmadi's side, just as members, you know, there's there's a fear, right? Like going into a non-Ahmadi mosque can sometimes yeah. be a scary thing. You know, very often, typically, it's totally fine. There's no issues. But sometimes you get a person there who says, oh, well, you're not Muslim or something much, much worse Mm -hmm. than that. So if you are in a position of leadership in a Muslim organization or a mosque um, that is, you know, not Ahmadi, whether it's Shia or Sunni or anything else, um, you know, definitely reach out to your Ahmadi neighbors and say, how can I be of service to you? How can we work together? You know, if we both have... Mm -hmm a food pantry or a blood drive can we you know work together on this can we join forces and mm-hmm. set aside that you know sectarianism that has really ripped our community apart that's a great point i should talking about what we were talking previously um the kind of journalism that you cover and the issues that you cover which can be very you know intense do you have a self care routine that you follow I wish. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I am basically glued to my phone 24-7. First thing I do when I wake up is check my email on Twitter and uh, it all goes downhill from there. It's interesting how COVID-19 has normalized so many things that we weren't doing previously, right? Yeah. So for me, because I would go out every day, I did all my interviews in a studio and this is a Zoom interview, which I hope listeners are more accommodating because sometimes when I'm recording at home, I feel like I sound like somebody out of ASMR videos, if you've seen them, <laughs> because in a studio, it's much easier. 
easier. Like the acoustics, everybody knows there's a sound engineer. Anyways, but I have started watching these like really trashy reality shows and I'm binge watching them. And the other day I was like, maybe this is my self-care. Maybe this is how I'm trying to just do some detox or catharsis. I don't know, but it's interesting. That's why I was asking you if you started watching anything trashy or crappy or have you started like focusing more on your skincare nowadays because we are all at home safe but home right there isn't much we can do so is there anything that you have started doing now we recently started a pretty bad show i would say don't get offended if you like the show dexter um, it, it's from a while back but it's you know some parts are just so cringy they try to make it really you know uh, dark and moody there was this, literally there was this one line in one of the first few episodes where he he's like holding an empty donut box and he's like, it's empty, like my soul, <laughs> something like that. I was just like, oh, this is so bad. But, you know, escapism never hurts anyone. I'm watching things like my 90 day fiance. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> which is, by the way, not that bad because... Um, on some level, I can relate to people coming from other parts of the world and settling here. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about journalism in general. Now, we see there is a lot of shoddy journalism, many of which is like fear mongering. And I'm not referring to a specific topic, but it happens whether it's elections, which we've seen there is a lot of like fear-mongering in that as well and the notion of electability and even with COVID-19 there is some degree of fear-mongering. Do you have any opinions on that and do you think journalists have a responsibility to draw a line between say prudence and panic? Yeah I think the number one thing that journalists have to you know be focused on is accuracy and a lot of times the stuff that verges on the side of panic if you apply the simple accuracy test, it fails that. There's exaggerations, there's dramatization, they pose questions that they don't answer, you know, there's clickbait, <laughs> there's things like that. So if you even just apply that simple fact-checking model, they don't quite pass muster there. But um, in general, I'm a big advocate of a model of journalism called solutions journalism. I try to orient as much of my reporting as I can um, in that model. And there, the focus is on reporting on, it's rigorous reporting on attempts to solve crises. So in this model, you're reporting on the crises, but through the lens of a solution that was attempted. Mm. So, you know, a community tried to solve a issue about, you know, a hunger or, you know, opioid crisis that they were having in their neighborhood with this you know, some initiative, here's how it panned out. What can other communities learn from it? So things like that, I think are really um, helpful. The The organization that really espouses and is, has worked on that model is the Solutions Journalism Network. They've got a fantastic um, tracker, part of their Solutions Journalism Hub, and they've tracked like thousands of stories that fit that model, you know, on every topic under the sun all over the world. And any journalists who want to be part of a more productive model of journalism, more productive ecosystem for journalism, I think that is a, a good technique to take in. Um, and it's it's uplifting 
to readers because they feel like, hey, like this is a thing that we can do in our community, or hey, there are people out there who are trying to solve this. It's not just some unsolvable crisis that, you know, is pressing down upon us. And yet it isn't just, you know, clickbait or fluffy or anything like that. It is Hmm. rigorously reported. Do you think people are more focused on marketability in journalism as well. And that's why we get the kind of journalism that we are getting now, because all that fluff is apparently more marketable than journalism. I think in part it's about marketability, but, you know, it's also because of a lack of resources. Editors that are, you know, themselves strapped for cash and resources are telling their reporters, hey, you need to write you know, two pieces a day. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. what do you expect, right? Like the, the yeah. journalism that's going to be produced is of a certain caliber, right? But the other thing I would say is that it's not just about marketability. It's also, it's like, there's just a this adherence to traditional norms of journalism for no reason whatsoever. I, I don't, it's just something I can't fathom, like why we insist on sticking to these traditions that, we're arbitrarily set and, you know, we just feel like we have to stick to them and it's not productive to us. It's not productive to our readers. It isn't resulting in revenue or clicks or, you know, it's not actually benefiting society in any way. So I don't, I don't really understand why we stick to those types of um, structures. So when you say traditional structures, uh, give, give me an example. So for example, you know, why can we not, here's one thing. A lot of journalism organizations, especially old school places, they don't want to link to a nonprofit in their piece. So they'll talk about, hey, this organization is doing this. But they're like, oh, we don't want to seem like we're promoting that organization. So we're not going to link to it. Why? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're just yeah, forcing your reader to go an extra step and Google them. Like, it's it's bizarre. And nobody is going to do that. No one is going to go and Google them. Yeah, it's, it's just, I, I don't understand, you know, journalists really think of themselves as serving the community, right? But um, instead, they kind of put themselves oftentimes in a lofty position like, oh, I'm doing folks a favor by giving them a platform, by giving them a voice, mm. right? Mm. That idea of like giving voice to the voiceless, I find that so destructive to journalism. You know, everybody has a voice <laughs> already. Like yeah. you're not, you're not doing anything. You're just amplifying it, but everybody, as you said, has a voice. Do you think there is a hierarchy of what gets reported, especially in the U.S.? Are there certain stories that get more coverage than others? I mean, definitely. um, And again, it comes down to like, like I was mentioning before, who's telling the stories, right? When I'm telling the story, there's, you know, certain types of stories that fall into my lap and that I will naturally go cover, you know, the press releases I get are from certain institutions that know of me and have the resources to be in in contact with me and have a good relationship with me. By that, I mean, you know, things like the Council on American Islamic Relations um, and other sorts of Muslim-led civil rights organizations like Engage and others. You know, they send me press releases regularly and I'm able to write stories about them easily. But even for me, what goes uncovered are stories about, you know, Shia organizations you know, that are less well-structured, right? They don't have as many major national organizations that are in charge of their PR. So obviously I'm just not going to be able to cover that as much. But that's me as a Muslim, right? That's the stories that go covered and uncovered for me. For my organization, the Religion News Service, we are focused on a small niche 
of religion. But even for us, when I first arrived at Religion News Service as an intern, my editors were pointing me to, okay, here's our, you know, let me introduce you to our reporter who covers the Black church. Here's our reporter who covers Judaism. Um, here's our reporter who covers Catholicism. And here's somebody who covers Protestantism and evangelicals, right? And I was like, oh, cool, where's your Muslim reporter? They don't have one, right? They form it out to freelancers. Whoever is least busy that day will handle the story, right? And that was bizarre to me, you know, second biggest religion in the world, um, one of the fastest growing religions in America, kind of absurd. So that's, you know, that's when I kind of came in there and was like, hang on, let me, let me handle this. But obviously, you know, I only have my own experience as, you know, Pakistani American. I'm Ahmadi. I don't speak Arabic. I live in Boston and don't have the resources to travel around the country. So, you know, I'm limited in the, num the scope of stories I can tell and the scope of stories that I even know are out there to tell. So that's mm -hmm. why I feel like the solution is not just having, in my case, Muslim reporters out there, but also, you know, we need more Black Muslim reporters. We need more um, Shia Muslim reporters. We need no, more Iranian Muslim reporters, as well as, you know, more Indian Muslim reporters and other things, right? Do you think because of all this frustration, younger journalists are carving their own space. They are going the indie route and creating platforms. You have a platform, like not just the kind of work that you do, but through Creeping Sharia, you're trying to amplify voices that you believe in. Do you see that happening more? Yeah, I definitely do see that, that happening more and more. And that definitely comes with its benefits. You know, you, you are able to speak freely. You're able to give platforms to whoever you want. You're able to really pursue your vision. But I mean, at the end of the day, those kinds of organizations very often are not sustainable. And I, it's, it's really sad to me. I see so many, you know, young, passionate, very, you know, sharp people who pursue these kinds of indie projects. And, you know, within a year or two, it ends up falling flat because, you know, you can't always get the grant funding. It's, it's, you know, it's very competitive. And I'm sure over the next few years, as this pandemic takes its toll, you know, economically on our country, that's only going to get worse. And um, so I, I think sometimes I think that the best route is to stick to a mainstream outlet and just do such good work that they, they become convinced or you are able to convince them rather that they have to publish the kind of stories you want to do. They have to set up a vertical or a column for you. They have to give you the video show that you want to produce. I don't know. But that's what really is confounding to me because I feel like there is so much bureaucracy in those systems and we can take any field and you will see it happening anywhere. I always give example of my work. I used to work for a very small civil society organization and there was a lot of work that we did with UN women. Now UN as an entity and different entities within UN are so bureaucratic that if you want to affect change, the kind of change that for instance I en envisioned, it would never happen. It doesn't happen. So what do you do? Like, it's like either you stick with that kind of bureaucracy or you carve out your own space. And as you pointed out, there are a lot of issues with that. Like, I, I see that with my podcast. So as a solutions journalist, do you think there is like a middle ground that people can take? Well, the, the ground I've taken is I'm sticking with a fairly mainstream, but still kind of niche outlet. 
So, you know, not everybody knows about the religion you service and they give me a lot of freedom more than I feel I would get at, you know, another outlet to pursue the kinds of stories I want to do. But because they are a wire agency, you know, they have an expectation of me that I'm going to publish a certain number of stories a month. And often they have to be very quick, short, um, quick turnaround pieces. So I end up having to balance those types of stories with the stories I actually want to pursue. Um, And then on top of that, I spend my free time with uh, my project Creeping Sharia, which is totally, you know, just there, there's no profit in that whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I, it's a f- completely free newsletter. I'm not charging anyone, but I, I put it on the platform Substack, the newsletter platform, which I can at any time decide to turn that into a paid product or add a paid product onto that. You know, maybe I'll send more newsletters if you pay a few bucks a month. I don't know. I I've left it open for myself, but, um, Ultimately, I've decided that my personal agenda is to just get this information out in the world. So that makes a lot of sense. I always ask my guests this question. If you were to define America, how would you do that? Ooh, that's a deep one. Um, I just feel like <laughs> in some ways it feels like a failed experiment in the sense that, you know, the economic systems that it was built upon and the kind of racial hierarchies, et cetera, that um, it was founded upon. I mean, we can clearly see today, especially during this pandemic, that they haven't served us well. And yeah. they're kind of, I mean, they've left so many Americans, so many citizens out in the cold, you know, whether they're incarcerated or they're, you know, single mothers or people who have any illness under the sun. But also, on the other hand, there are so many incredible freedoms that this country has. And as an Ahmadi Muslim, I can, you know, I feel that acutely, you know, the the religious freedom, it's not perfect in this country, but I wouldn't trade that for religious freedoms I see in pretty much any other country. So um, it's, it is what it is. But I think we I think we can work together and make it better. Thank you so much, Aisha. This was wonderful. And nowadays I sign off by saying stay safe and distant. I feel like it's become so normal now that I just automatically end up saying that. So stay safe and stay well. And thank you so much for this wonderful interview. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you guys enjoyed Aisha's episode because I sure did. Just a reminder, Immigrantly is an indie podcast. And the way we grow is if you subscribe to the pod and you share it with your family and friends. So guys, please consider sharing it. This is how we will grow the podcast and this is how we will sustain it. By the way, we are also on Twitter and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is at immigrantly underscore pod. And on Instagram, we are at immigrantly pod. Be sure to tune in next week when we have another amazing story. And in the meantime, stay safe and distant. Mm-hmm.